Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Professional Series. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Margalit from Margalit Law. This was a great conversation. It was really rolling in a number of different areas. Michelle's one of the first women we've had on our podcast, so it was great to have that gender balance. She really came at business from an interesting perspective, being a young woman in law and having set up her own law firm. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so thankful for her for joining us, and let's crack into it. Michelle, thanks so much for joining me today. One of the burning questions that I've got for you is, what is it that you do? <laughs> thanks for having me, Scott. Um, <laughs> I am an injury lawyer and I act for injured people. So I don't ever work for the person or the company that's injured the person. I only act for the injured party. So I'm a plaintiff personal injury lawyer and I run a firm called Margaret Injury Lawyers. So how did you get here? What's the story that's got you to to being the principal of your own law firm? Oh, how much time do you have? (laughs) No, in a nutshell. About 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) In a nutshell, um, I've always been really interested in people and social justice. And when I was at the university, originally I thought I'd be good to work in family law because it touches upon the everyday experiences and the really important things to people in life. And I had a pretty um, rough road when I first started uni because my dad became very, very sick. Um, he had some pretty um, devastating strokes and then contracted or uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died okay. not long after that. And I suppose that was a pretty tough time in my life and I struggled to get through uni. And um, so I lost confidence that I ever would actually be able to become a lawyer. So when I finally made it through uni and I was lucky enough to get a position as an article clerk. The position I got was as in injury law. And I thought, oh, well, I may as well give this a go because it, again, deals with the really important things for people, going to work, being able to pay their bills, these types of things. And I was just so lucky that I fell into that area because I absolutely love it. It's really, Mm. really interesting. So I worked for that firm where I started for about eight years and I gave them my blood, my sweat, my tears, my weekends, my evenings. I gave them everything. Jesus. (laughs) Um, Okay. So that was what, 21 to what, 29 or something? So I think I finished uni a little bit late because I I took some time out after my dad passed away and I gave event management a go um, and I thought it would be like going to the races or something shiny like that. But I was um, helping with tax seminars, so (laughs) it just wasn't what what I was expecting. (laughs) But I think I got started maybe when I was about 25 or 26. Yeah, so I gave them a lot of time and I was passionate about that firm. So someone sitting listening to this podcast right now, they might be in a role that they've put their heart and soul into for a number of years. What was the the crucial point at which, say, seven and a half years are up in in that role? You've given them the weekends, the blood, sweat and tears. What's going through your mind? Look, for me, I had to come to the point where I realised that the only way forward for me was, was I going to make partner at this firm or not? And I I don't know if I would have. But for me, I realised that even if I did make partner at that firm, it wouldn't have been the partnership role that I would have wanted to be in because I really love making strategic decisions. I love being creative. And I think in that partnership, people had already filled those roles. So I wouldn't have had that freedom to really make those big, fun, exciting, broad global decisions. So for me, that's when I decided to give something else a go. So then what happens next? 
So I next went to work for an ASX listed national company um, and I gave that a shot, which was really, again, a great sort of training. I learned about the way, another way to do things within a listed company, which was fascinating. But while I was there, I went on to meet the person who would become my business partner. And that was fantastic because we were both really excited about opening a business. We were both in a position where we had the capacity and the, you know, the resources to do so, which is pretty rare, pretty mm-hmm. tough um, financially to start a personal injury law firm. And so we went on to found the company um, that, you know, exists today. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that was... So was there something about finding that business partner that gave you that confidence or what was that process that you were thinking through? Again, if I'm listening to this, what should I be looking for in a business partner? What was maybe not what to do as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got to assess the risk and the opportunity every time you come across these types of um, sort of, you know, forks in the road. And for me, um, you know, it was really the fact that we were great mates. We had a lot of fun. We both were quite passionate about helping people. Um, And again, also, we just had the resources to do it. I suppose it would have been, with hindsight now, it would have been better had we worked together more closely before we started the business because 12 months down the road after working t- very closely together one-on-one, we realised that we actually saw things a little bit differently. So we decided to actually end the partnership and I took over the firm mm. actually one week before I gave birth to my first son. <laughs> <laughs> so is it that, that world of mixing friends and business or...? Yeah, look, I mean, I've also gone on to have a really successful business relationship with our office manager. So we've worked together over the years for, you know, almost 10 or more years now. um, And he's a great, very close friend. So I think it's just, I suppose, maybe it's the length of time you know someone for or how closely you've known them. But it's hard until you get into that spot. And even though it didn't work, I'm really glad I did it because, as you sort of mentioned before, I wouldn't have done it alone. It gave me the confidence to start the business. Mm-hmm. So it's about making sure you've got, you're surrounded by the right people mm. at the right time to, to help you with that transition. Yeah, and also to have, I suppose, a bit of a, a get-out-of-jail get out plan or, a, <laughs> you know, if it doesn't work out, what will it look like? And are you okay. okay with what it will look like if it doesn't work? So did you have an official agreement in place? Yeah, we did. We did. And so we, I think, yeah, isn't that, a, that's a big learning right there. So many people do go in business with each other and they don't have an appropriate agreement. I'm not, what's the term called? Uh, we had a partnership deed. That's um, what. Yeah. And I think the way I've always treated business is let's pretend we're a big company. <laughs> so let's set up all the infrastructure around us so that, you know, nothing fails. Let's not try to be everything to everyone. Let's set I it up. I love this. Right. So if you listen to this, get the structures in place first. Did you do those documents yourself or did you outsource it to a to a specialist? I outsourced it to a specialist. You know, I can run a mediation, I can draft a statement of claim, but you know, that that's not my skill set drafting a deed of partnership. Okay. So I do want to ask you a question on how I should pick a lawyer, but before I ask you that question, um, I just want to get back to what the hell was it like being pregnant and setting the <laughs> setting a firm up? What's going through your head? I like to be busy. <laughs> and look, it was a really interesting time and for a number of reasons. I think um, it was an interesting time being in partnership with a male because I'd never sort of had such, my eyes opened to 
the level of um, gender bias that still exists in society. So, mm. for instance, often, I'd probably say eight to nine times out of ten, if we were approached by someone um, to, who wanted our business, not for us to act for them, but, you know, for us to sign up to some sort of, you know, some contract with them. Or a um, software like, like Leap or yeah. some internal legal software that they were trying to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They'd always write to him. And I just found that astounding. That was really interesting. And then also being pregnant, trying to do things like get business finance when, you know, I'm <laughs> waddling around. Um, that was also quite a daunting experience. <laughs> wow. Was there any moments that you remember of going, oh, my God, what's happening here or back at that time? Oh, absolutely. I remember sitting on the hospital bed, being monitored and negotiating the final sort of end of, uh, end of partnership. And so that was a pretty surreal experience. So wow. So just give me a moment. I just need to type this out. <laughs> <laughs> but I need to wait. <laughs> okay. So you certainly had some challenges there. So this is the question that I always have wanted to ask is, let's say, for example, I'm looking for a lawyer. What do you look for? So you've engaged lawyers. What should, what should I be asking the questions or what should I be thinking? Yeah. One step back, my starting point, it's a really easy blanket starting point, is if you're engaging a lawyer, seek an accredited specialist from the Law Institute okay. of Victoria um, because they've had to go through a very grueling accreditation process and it shows that they've got a number of years' experience before them. You can only apply after you're five years in and in addition to that, it takes about six or seven months and you undergo three examinations and it's tough. So you know that whoever is an accredited specialist has really done the yards. So, what, so there's people all around the world who listen to this. So let's say, I mean, New South Wales or, or South Australia, is there a similar? So what's it called, the, the accreditation? Yeah, that's right. So an accredited specialist and you can be an okay. accredited specialist in your area. So I'm a personal injury accredited specialist. Accredited specialist. Yeah. And so you find that through your relevant law society. Um, and I'm aware that the same type of specialisation exists in New South Wales and I'm sure there'd be something similar in other states. Mm-hmm. Okay. In addition so that's to that- step one. And that's so basically, so go to that as a register and then go from there? Yep, that's right. And I think from there, there's a couple of real key pointers. One is you've got to have a good report. You've got to feel like you trust this person because once you get started and you invest time with them, um, it can possibly cost you to then swap later down the line and you're starting again and it creates delay. So feel that you trust them and feel that you get along and they're hearing you. And mm. importantly, that they're asking you lots of questions. You want someone to really be going into the minutiae with you. And I suppose you also want to make sure that the person you meet is the person doing your work because mm-hmm. at a lot of firms you think you're signing up with the partner or the managing principal or whoever else but they're actually then handballing your case off so um, to, to a, a junior who's first cutting their teeth on your case. So really? ensure that the person you've met that's doing the work. Right. Would you suggest that the quality of work might not be as good or they might be a bit rushed or...? First, as a junior lawyer, you don't know what you don't know. I think you've got to just know that you need to know who's handling it and that they've got the requisite experience to spot out those, you know, landmines that they're not aware that are there. So how do people find you? So I know, so actually, let's take a step back. So the personal injury world, you're not an ambulance chaser. (laughs) And this is an interesting crossover because as an insurance specialist on my side, I see people with TPD claims and I have seen people 
go to a lawyer when they shouldn't have, when they should have just given us a call and we could have helped with the TPD payment, but instead that they weren't aware of the service that we provide, even though we'd written to them stating this is what we do, that then engaged the lawyer who'd then taken, and, and in this case, I know that we briefly spoke about um, a, a few weeks ago, was the, the gentleman had a $100,000 TPD payment, which is never enough. If you, if you, if you are disabled, TPD, $100,000 is nothing. Realistically, in terms of the, the home modifications you need to make, and the fact that you could be 45 and you'll be disabled for the rest of your life, and then 30 grand of that, or 30%, was sent to the law firm. Gosh! And I saw the letter, and it was mind blowing. So that's basically I've had that experience, and I saw you, and I was like, you know what? I need to get you on the podcast, and I need to get your view on this. One of the reasons I started my firm was this issue of cost, mm. and as lawyers, we're bound to charge proportionately. So it, it shouldn't be to those types of percentages of 30 or 50%. In some cases, things happen, for instance, a doctor might charge you for a report and it could cost thousands of dollars and you might need to get multiple reports so the costs start going up. Um, but certainly that was one of the reasons that I started my firm because I just really do not agree with the way some of the firms have been charging um, these regular charges of 30 to 50 percent. Is that your lingo, regular charges? Oh, I suppose I just see it regularly. And the starting point in what we do, you can't simply charge a percentage of someone's compensation. What I offer to my clients is that we'll fix fees or that we will cap them. So they'll know they'll never be charged more than a certain amount. And they'll know that right from the outset, which is pretty important with something like a TPD when your compensation is so limited. Yep. Yeah. It's never enough. And, and it's, I'm always balancing with people saying, well, look, I don't want to really want to play, pay the premiums, which is fine. But 100% of the time that I've spoken to someone that's gone on claim, the funds has never, never been there. Even if it's a million dollars of, of, of life and TPD insurance, which is a fairly common amount for, say, a professional who's, learning, who's 40 to 50. You know, the average life expectancy is mid-80s. So basically, you've got another 45 years of life as a, someone who's just permanently disabled. So from my perspective, it's very valuable to have that conversation. So for yourself, when would I be wanting to, to engage your services? My view is the sooner you get a, a lawyer on board, the better. And mm-hmm. we'll be saying, of course, you say that. <laughs> but- oh, same for planning as well. <laughs> <laughs> Quite seriously, what happens is that evidence is lost over time and people's memories fade over time. So particularly if you're wanting to prove negligence, you really need to get in there right from the outset and we take down all of the details um, from the very start. Um, So we'll take down your statement, which is just a confidential statement. Just taking a higher level. So what types of people, so you're working with workplace injuries? Workplace injuries, road accidents, public liability, so like slips and trips, sexual assaults, assaults, and medical negligence. Right. Okay. Mm. So someone is in the workplace and they've been sexually assaulted and off we go, or we're at a nightclub or we're on the street. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's say an event has happened and I feel that I need to talk to someone. I pick up the phone. What happens next? So I'll have about an hour or so conversation with you where we talk about what's actually happened. And what I want to understand is the details of the accident, your history, so anything relevant in your past, if you've had an operation previously, if you've got, you know, criminal a criminal record. Um, and then I want to understand also um, how you are today, how your injury is impacting on your life today. 
And depending on how long ago the injury was, we can sometimes, um, if it's been about a year or so, generally we can get things moving pretty quickly. Um, but sometimes we have to wait to see how the injury resolves and what it will look like for the rest of your life. Can you give some examples on, on types of injuries that you'd see or, or like types yeah. of specific cases that, that have come up, say, from the last six months, changing names yeah. and dates? certainly I mean I see um, I've got a lot of cases where people seem to have tripped on negligent Telstra pits or other sort of electrical utility pits in the street or the hidden in uh, nature strips so there's a lot of broken or pits that aren't to specification that you know trip people up and they can suffer very bad injuries to their Mm. hips and their shoulders I see a lot of back injuries from manual handling We recently acted for a bloke who was sexually abused while he was a volunteer for the Puffing Billy, and this happened many, many years ago, and it was awful. There was a known pedophile who was employed by the Puffing Billy for many, many years, even though they knew that he had this history, and he um, assaulted or abused many, many kids. So that was a very big case. How did you go about proving it? I know, sorry, that's a naive question to ask as a non-lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, but there's lots of ways to prove a case, um, and but a lot of it comes down to are you going to be believed? So, oh, wow. in, particularly a case which is a historical abuse case, it's about how you present your evidence, and also maybe the people at the time, what evidence they can give about what they saw at that time. Right. So, there's been an event that's occurred. It might be a day, it might be a week, or it might be a year later. I pick up the phone, we've had an hour conversation. How do people find you? So what's the bulk volume? Of, is it majority Google? Do people just Google, I need a lawyer? Or how does it work? That's right. It's the majority of people who go to law firms these days for this type of work, just jump on their phones and Google best injury lawyer or road accident lawyer. And because of that, um, it's a really expensive way to advertise. Yeah. Where- are up against the likes of Slater and Gordon, Morris Blackburn, um, and they have a lot more money money than we do. So we have to okay. be smart. <laughs> yeah, I know with, with my game, it's 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 exactly the same. So like ANZ, NAB, all the big banks own the most of the keywords around best financial planner, financial planner Melbourne, these types of terms. So what's unique about what we do is is I don't want to talk to one thousand people. I want to talk to thirty people a year. So we go completely micro as opposed to mass market. So I don't even bother trying to play in the space of the cents per click world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a bit similar for us when it comes to TV. We just don't have the capacity at this moment to advertise on TV because while we might be able to afford to make the ad, we just can't afford the the (laughs) airtime. So how do people find you? So I'm genuinely interested. Yeah, so I suppose there is a level of um, Google AdWords. And we have run some TV campaigns. We have been lucky enough to have a lot of personal referrals from past clients. So I try to be very generous with my time and I genuinely care about my clients. And so we've found that we are having quite a bit of, not repeat business from those customers, but from people they know. Okay. Okay. So one person knows another person gets injured and then it just keeps going from there. Yeah, and particularly in negligent workplaces, you know, there will be people suffering similar similar injuries. Has you had any COVID-related issues yet? Yeah, we had an influx of calls about people essentially not knowing what the limits are or what the regulations are and becoming quite paranoid about having to go to work and 
someone might be coughing next to them and you know they can even start to suffer psychiatric injuries because of this paranoia about you know being too close to a co-worker um, or a co-worker not putting on a mask or those types of things it creates a whole nother level of source for mental injury and there's also um, if you're a business owner yourself and you suffer an injury in your own business you can actually put in a work cover claim if you've suffered you know a mental injury because of the stress of COVID. Yeah if you need to go back and listen to the Alan Briggs Crisis Guy podcast Alan was talking about what's going to happen when we're all going back into the workplaces. I mean, this is going to date the podcast straight away, but it is 2020 and you'll, you'll have co-workers sitting next to each other or within 1.2 meters of each other and someone on the far right who doesn't believe in it and thinks it's, it's all a myth and, and wearing a mask is an assault to their personal freedom. And you've got someone within literally arm's length saying, I haven't left the house in six, six eight months. All my food's been delivered. I have gloves on. I have two masks on. And what the hell do you do if you're, say, a Crown Casino or a Marvel Stadium or one of the big banks and you've got 20,000 workers that you need to get back into the offices? And the answer to what he was saying was the business needs to take a position, whether it's right or wrong. They have to take a firm line and say, this is the position we've got. We're doing X. That was his response. But like, I see that just causing so much problem in 21 and the future. Absolutely. And even people are changing the way they work. So I believe we're going to see an influx of manual workers with injuries because, for instance, they've had to work longer shifts that really or Woolworths or wherever it is. And, you know, they're having to process a lot more because we're now living in different ways. So, mm. you know, these processes or these policies won't have caught up in time to actually yeah. facilitate this. Yeah, that's why Australia Post is, is doing the same thing, isn't it? Um, I know there's some issues around that. Absolutely. Do you mind if I ask? I know like there's 100% of my guests have said we can't always share everything, but is there some stories in which you've, say, for example, really helped some people that come to mind in a two-minute summary? Absolutely. Currently, I'm really trying to help someone that I'm quite passionate about. Um, I have a, a, a client who has suffered an injury um, and is being treated very poorly at the moment. And if you were to change the name and injury, could you be specific around? Look, they, they work in picking and packing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're a manual worker and have suffered a shoulder injury. And the problem for them is that English is not their first language and their employer hasn't been fully frank with them about what their rights are. And this case it's never going to be multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars because the scheme that it's under, it's, a, it's under a particular type of scheme where the maximum compensation is only $110,000, which is a crying shame. We need to do something about the Comcare system. It's um, more income protection as well. That'd help. Yes. <laughs> From the insurance guy. <laughs> I'll send her your way. Um, <laughs> but the problem is she needs surgery. And they've refused her surgery and they're playing funny buggers. So I've been fighting tooth and nail to help this woman get surgery, but not only to get it, but get it in a timely manner because the longer it goes on, the worse her outcome will be. Mm. So I'm quite passionate about even those really small fights. But, you know, we have major, major cases as well. I ran a series of litigation against Crown Casino where you might remember many years ago the security guards at Crown Casino were allegedly using too much force and people were getting injured quite regularly. And when we went to press about that, I had about 60 new clients call up and tell me 
I've been assaulted by guards at Crown Casino. So that was a wow. really, really interesting series of litigation to be involved in. Wow. Can you comment on the outcome? How What happened with that? Look, there were multiple cases. Um, so many of those that called in, they didn't sort of meet the criteria to have a, a case that I could take on. But there were probably, I think, maybe 10 or 15 cases that we ended up taking on. And unfortunately, the problem with litigation often is you can't actually reveal the, the outcome if you settle. So uh, okay. I can't actually reveal the outcome. And another really satisfying case was that Puffing Billy case because in that case, there was a public apology in Parliament um, and we attended wow. Parliament with our client and Dan Andrews actually said, we're sorry, essentially wow. it should not have happened. So that was a really special day. Yeah, that would have been, I'm sure there was tears everywhere for everyone involved. So what's your view on other people within your industry? So because I see a lot of, so, so we see a lot of advertising, we hear about it. There's a lot of, like, same with my industry, like, if you say the word financial planner, people instantly lose interest in what you do, how it works. Like, oh, you know, it's it's unfortunately that it's ba- basically if I told someone I was a coal miner, I think I'd probably be treated better. It's a bit the same <laughs> as a lawyer. <laughs> Specifically personal injury maybe as well. So what's your view on people who don't act? So how could I act unethically in your industry? And what should I be looking for if, if I was speaking to someone? What are the red flags to be looking for? I suppose there's different ways to be unethical and I think it luckily it's really, really rare. So I think the vast majority of people who do what I do, um, it's so hard to get here and it's also so hard to stay in the game and be good at what you do and rise through the ranks. I think most people really are ethical. I do think that there's a few people here and there who sometimes, let's say, just lose sight of what's important. So unethical charging, you know, it's a very grey area. Um, so I think, you know, you really want to understand what your costs are going to be um, and that's a way to really look at your costs agreement and if you don't feel that you really understand, ask for f- fixed costs, ask for capped costs and if they're not willing to do that, go somewhere else because someone so, else so, is willing to do so that. So that. that cost agreement, uh, just for someone who doesn't know what we're talking about, is mm-hmm. is that's provided when I first talk to you but prior to our first meeting, what... what so you get that generally in your first meeting or shortly after and okay. we're required by the uniform law to make disclosure about what your likely charges are going to be and we have to give one figure which is quite a funny thing to do because every case is so different and right at the start you don't know what it's, what the case is going to turn out like and how much work's involved. But we certainly can find a way to give people more comfort um, and if a, a company's not willing to be flexible, go elsewhere. Fair enough. That makes sense. You're a little specific because the more successful you are, the more expensive your business is because of the way that you actually fund the litigation. Yeah. So a thing called a litigation funding company. Um, so there's companies out there who essentially provide credit for cases. Um, uh-huh. And so they can charge varying degrees of interest um, on the specific items they pay for. So Say you get a medical report that costs $1,000, they'll pay for the report, but they charge the client 30%, let's say, in some cases, or 35% I've seen. Um, So that's an extra $350. That is just for the privilege of having someone fund your case. Wow. Yeah. And it's a bit of a hidden hidden thing. so, so just to take a step back. So, so I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm working with a lawyer, and they go, no, no, it's all good. We've got this litigation funded. They can, they'll, they'll organise this for you, and they'll, they'll pay for it. And you just go, okay, fine. 
Yeah, because I don't. I think a lot of people don't understand that you don't have to do that. It's sort of presented okay. to you as the norm, whereas I don't think it should be the norm. Um, I think that the interest that they charge is too high. So we don't use litigation funders. Our firm pays for all of the outgoing expenses of your case and we don't charge interest for doing that. And if you lose your case, we just absorb that cost. Whereas with some of the other firms, they use these litigation funders. And so you end up paying what can be substantially more at the end. Is that a unique business model to yourselves or is that fairly unique? Look, I think it it would be probably the minority of injury law firms who don't use litigation funders. There are others out there, um, but uh, I'd say the majority are using the litigation funders. And these companies do make disclosure. So you are given the documents that tell you that this is being done. But for someone who isn't educated or hasn't been through this process, the level of understanding can be pretty limited sometimes. Right. Okay. So let's say we're going through the case. What goes wrong? And I know I've got a little mention here about people trying to manipulate the case. Yeah. Um, look, I think most often, um, you know, people are really genuine and upfront and frank and honest about what's happened to them. Occasionally, some people, they really want to help with the case and they really want to improve the case. And sometimes when you push it too hard as a client, when you're too focused on a case outcome, it can actually damage your case. So my advice to people is always you just look after your health, you concentrate on your health and you let us worry about maximising your compensation. So what are the common things that people do wrong? I think sort of pushing doctors to say different things um, is oh. something we see sometimes to really sort of push for a diagnosis or, or to say that they can't work. It doesn't happen that often, let me say. This is, I mean, the vast majority or almost every client that I've had is honest. Um, but occasionally we do see people pushing doctors. Um, and also occasionally you get a client who doesn't tell you the truth. So, for instance, I had a case once. This has only happened to me once in my whole career. But we were sitting in court and they were saying, can you work? And she says, no, I can't work. And then they say, well, have a look at this video. <laughs> and there she is as part of a troop of cleaning ladies. And she's clearly working. So... <laughs> So the number of cases I've managed in the last 10 years, for that to have only happened once, it's, it's, it shows a pretty uh, high level of honesty that I've experienced. Okay. But it happens occasionally. That might be a, high, that might be a, um, a filtration method that you guys do before you take a case on. Absolutely. Because the other thing is we don't get paid if we don't win. And so certainly we can't be taking on cases that are, or, you know, people who are lying about their claims. So we just don't give them, you know, obviously we're very polite to them and say thank you for coming in, and, but we don't take on those cases where we don't think that there's mm. an injury. I only make that point because the New South Wales government put out a video last week talking about it was their fraud department and they had figured out that somewhere between 20 and 30% of all resumes that the government received for jobs had factually false information on them. Gosh. <laughs> And that is like easy to provide. So education was wrong, background was wrong, not completed education and actually hadn't worked there. And they put this out last week because if you make a false claim to become a, I forget the word they use, you know, you have to check this. I'll put a link to the description, but it's basically, if you make a false claim to become a public figure, e.g. a public servant, that is a fraud case. And yeah, they said 20 to 30% of resumes were, had had that. Just not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) 
So look, I'm keeping an eye on my time. I know you've got a, a young one asleep at the moment. What is it that you do for fun outside of work? Well, my idea of fun's vastly changed over the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I used to love going to a restaurant and having a drink or two and traveling and running marathons and these types of things. But these days, you know, I'm really into the block at the moment. <laughs> and I love the cycle class. <laughs> okay. Yep. Um, but with COVID and we're in lockdown still, there's not a lot to do other than go for a walk and cook and get takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully the world will all be open by the time you're listening to this podcast and in the future. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. So how can I find you on the internet right now? If you Google Margalit Injury Lawyers, Margalit is spelled M-A-R-G-A-L-I-T, then Google us and we're on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook. So please reach out anytime. And if you'd like to speak to me directly, um, call anytime because I, I will always pick up the phone. All right. Look, thanks so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you. It's been great. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. Looking forward to speaking with you soon on our next episode of The Professional Series.